The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. We want to return to what's going on in Gaza and the exchange of hostages. And uh, joining me now in studio is journalist Hannah McCarthy. We've been talking to Hannah uh, over the last uh, few weeks uh, from Israel, but she's here briefly, uh, just a visit home, Hannah, I presume? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a couple of days home. And then you're back out to Israel. Um, you've been looking at the gestation of this deal. How do you read it? Uh, you know, it's obviously a positive development for all the relatives of hostages at home. Many countries will hope that it's the building blocks for a longer truce. At the same time, there are question marks over why a similar deal uh, like the one we've we've heard of this morning was not agreed to You know, a month ago before the ground invasion started. A very similar deal uh, was proposed, you know, where there would have been 50 hostages uh, released. Uh, the Israelis said no. Uh, so what's kind of changed since then? Uh, they don't have a clear military victory. You know, they have obviously devastated the Gaza Strip, uh, but we're not seeing them, you know, claim, you know, victory over Hamas. Indeed, they've said they will continue once the ceasefire or truce or whatever it is called is over. Uh, they will resume the hostilities. They will resume the hostilities. And what we we're also seeing is that there'll be a, a focus on the su- southern part of Gaza. Now we're seeing leaflets dropped uh, on areas around Khan Yunus, which, you know, were ring fenced as, you know, quote unquote, safe zones by the Israelis when, you know, it's clear now that they're not. Uh, So there's huge concerns about how big this ground invasion could get. This is, you know, far beyond, I think, what anyone in the international community believed, particularly those who, you know, really stood by Israel and its right to defend itself uh, against Hamas. Uh, Is it also much greater than Hamas had anticipated? It seems so. I mean, it's hard to know what their strategy was. You know, on the basis of interviews they've done before, they seem to have this kind of messianic kind of view that, you know, you go into this total war phase and suddenly other Arab countries will, you know, rise up, you know, and fight along you. That clearly has not happened. It was clearly a strategy that had no basis in reality. Uh, And what we're seeing as well is within the Gaza Strip uh, is that, you know, Palestinians are turning against Hamas, uh, huge anger, uh, we have reports that Hamas... Is that so? Because uh, often we're told on the one hand that young people, uh, young teenagers, males particularly, will be radicalised by this and will form uh, the son of Hamas or the brother of Hamas or whatever it might be. Are you saying that there are Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who are saying, Hamas, you brought this down on our heads? I would say longer term, we don't know like how people could be radicalised You know, after the war and the immediate you know, threats from that you know, come. But what we're seeing from reports within Gaza is that there is clear anger towards Hamas. Uh, you know, there's reports of Hamas militants trying to skip queues and you know being attacked by locals. Um, you know, open anger about you know how they could launch this. You know, you know, launch an invasion that they knew or a strike on Israel that they knew was going to have a massive retaliation without any civilian stockpiling. Uh, they said it's clear that you know there was no effort to protect civilians. So we're seeing, you know, reports, you know, and they're not, you know, just one or two. There's like quite a few reports of, you know, anger towards mass militants. Now, the exchanges uh, will happen. Presumably uh, those who are being released will come through the Rafa crossing. What about the other way, uh, The those that are being released by Israel? Where will they be allowed to go to? So, I mean... There have already been Palestinians you know, from Gaza who were held in prisons in the West Bank after the 7th of October. Uh, they were basically allowed to cross over what is normally a goods and supplies 
border crossing uh, between Israel and Gaza. Um, and then, again, it's slightly confusing how they took the route. Some of them ended up then at the Rafa crossing and came came through. So it's unclear exactly how that transfer is going to happen. There are obviously border crossings between Israel and Gaza that they have said are not open. They have officially said they're damaged. It's clear that they don't want them used. Now, we heard earlier on the programme that uh, hostages are held by disparate groups, whether it's Islamic State, Islamic Jihad or others. Um do we know how many of the hostages are living? That's a question that no one as yet has been able to answer. We don't know. And that's actually, I think, been a, a kind of a, an issue within the negotiations. The fact that Hamas cannot you know, give an accurate number on you know, who is where, the names of everyone and whether they're alive or not. We know some people had quite serious medical conditions. Some people were elderly. There was at least one woman who was nine months pregnant when she uh, was taken. Um, this has been exacerbated by the total communications um, you know, blackout within uh, the Gaza Strip that has made coordination extremely difficult. And the fact that some of some of the hostages were taken by, you know, opportunistic Palestinian gangs who uh, I doubt, you know, have access to tunnels or the kind of resources and stockpiling of food and medicine. So although some hostages are reported to have been treated under the circumstances, relatively well. I mean, they, they're they given some nourishment and water and so on, and their wounds might be treated. Uh, there's no way of knowing other hostages taken by these gangs, what condition they're in, if indeed they're alive at all. Yes, and I mean, Hamas has at different intervals said that, you know, hostages have been killed. It's hard to know whether it was a negotiating tactic designed to put pressure on the Israelis. You know, at one point they said 60 had been killed. I mean, that's slightly disappeared from, you know, what they're saying now, but we don't know, you know, we really don't know what's going to, you know, the condition that hostages are going to be released in until they're actually out. Now, a four day uh, ceasefire and 10 hostages will be uh, released every day and the prospect of extending by a day another 10 and so on and so forth. It obviously can't go on uh, for too many days or Hamas and their allies uh, in the Gaza Strip will run out of, uh, of leverage. True. And I think, you know, once we get over that four day window, I think it's going to be um, a kind of volatile and very sensitive period as we see what strategies are at play. You know, it's the, the, the hostages have not, again, been a priority for the government and even, you know, Ishmael Ben-Gavir opposed this hostage deal. So there is divisions within Netanyahu's own government, you know, about whether the hostages should be the focus and the fact that they're allowing Hamas to, you know, regenerate, regroup. So there is going to be push and pull factories, factors within both Hamas and within the Israeli government over how this plays out after that four day period. Now, obviously, the initial uh, days after October 7th, uh, there was massive anger and then the Israelis started their uh, bombardment and ultimately, after quite a long pause, they, they went in to conduct their military operations. Uh, initially, presumably, that, that, that anger on the part of Israelis and, of course, the sadness and sorrow of uh, the relatives of those who were killed or, or taken hostage, um, that uh, sorrow became activism and protest and demands on the Israeli government. Is that the pressure that has brought uh, most of the cabinet to, the, to, th- to this deal? I think there was mounting pressure from relatives of the hostages. I mean, they, they were taking part in the main kind of rallies or public demonstrations we've seen. There's been quite small, you know, anti-war ceasefire rallies. The, the main kind of, you know, 
op, you know, criticism of the government was coming from relatives of the family. They were also being brought around to governments around the world. They were speaking to governments. They had a large platform. Uh, so the fact that they were calling for the, the government to prioritise the return of the relatives, you know, it reached a point where it really couldn't be uh, ignored. Uh, and again, and presumably when the general public knew there was some sort of a deal in the making, that pressure then became intense on Netanyahu and his uh, his colleagues. Yes, and I mean, he he's kind of been reluctant to meet with uh, families of the hostages, but has kind of met with them more recently over the last week or so. And again, just, you know, international pressure over the huge loss of civilians as well. I think there was a need to show that there was, you know, some sort of, you know, willingness to come to a solution to reduce mm. the loss of life. Now, going back to October the 7th, the, the anger, the dismay uh, on the part of the Israeli population, we did the, the numbers here. It would be the equivalent, given the population of Ireland and the population of Israel, uh, about 800 people dying here in one day uh, as a result of an incursion from Northern Ireland or whatever, wherever it might have come from. Um, so, you can imagine the scarring of Irish society by an event like that. So it gives us a sense of how Israel uh, felt. But now, uh, more than a month on, what what is the discourse in the public square uh, about what has happened? Uh, I mean, I would say there's just still, you know, huge trauma. Everyone knew someone who was, you know, injured or taken hostage or murdered. You know, about 250,000 people are displaced, you know, unsure of when they'll be allowed to return to their homes. So huge upheaval uh, for Israeli society. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a mood towards, you know, peace or that's the dominant discourse at all. Uh, you know, there was even polling that came out recently that said a significant portion are in favour of reoccupying Gaza, which is something that the US has you know, publicly come out and said that is not on the cards, nor is a reduction in the size of the Gaza Strip. Uh, so I would say there is still, you know, an appetite for continuing the military operation. At the same time, there are increasing Israeli casualties. Over 60 soldiers have died. Uh, so I wouldn't say that, you know, we've reached a point where, you know, Israeli society is, you know, calling well, for peace. Even, even then, if you say 60 Israeli uh, members of the IDF have died, compare that to 12,500 uh, Palestinians who've died in the Gaza Strip. Y- you know, you, you can't be shedding all your tears for 60 people when you've killed so many others. Unfortunately, I just think the narrative within the Israeli media, it's not, you know, equivocating those lives. You know, there's there's clearly a different approach to Israeli casualties within the Israeli media. Um, you know, a lot of the media is not showing, you know, you know the, the attacks on Gaza in a particularly huma- humane way. Again, it's about vanqu- vanquishing the enemy. You know, every Palestinian is presented as a Hamas militant, which we know is not accurate. Uh, we know there have been, you know, over 5,000 children killed. That emphasis, you know, is not necessarily being presented within the Israeli media. You know, we've had, you know, years of dehumanization of, you know, Palestinians uh, and the kind of rhetoric we've got from, you know, extremely right wing government has not helped over the last you know, year. All right. Uh, you're returning to Israel? Uh, yeah, I expect to be returning after a bit Fairly, of a break. After a bit of a break. What is quite extraordinary when we look at the reportage from Tel Aviv or from Jerusalem, uh, and uh, often watching it at night and you see, you know, because a few hours ahead of us, you see the glimmering of the lights of Tel Aviv, you can see the traffic moving, and you can forget this is a country at war. 
Yes, and I did reporting kind of Ukraine last year, and you know you could spend hours in the bomb shelter, you know, because their missile defense system wasn't as good. But you know, in Tel Aviv, you go in, you know, for ten minutes and or less, and you're out after an air raid warning. You know, obviously it's not as crowded, but people are going about their lives. Restaurants are still open. People are jogging along the beach, uh, and it's bizarre to think that it's the same coastline as Gaza, or even like the same coastline as Beirut, where we've also kind of not in Beirut, but in South Lebanon, where we've seen attacks there as well. Hannah McCarthy, Irish journalist uh, covering the Middle East and heading back there after a short break. Hannah, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Now, come- The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.